Hello friends, I hope you're doing well. I am Ryan Stevens and I am excited to bring you the Catalyzing Podcast. Welcome back to a very special episode of the Catalyzing Podcast. This is ATS and J in 60. I am recording from the 2020 Athletic Trainer Society of New Jersey Conference, and we're bringing together a, a great summary of everything that this event entails uh, so that uh, all of you out there who attended can have a recap quick, and those who couldn't make it and those across the country can see and hear the great things that are happening in New Jersey right now. A uh, couple things real quick before we get into the the small interviews. We're doing uh, five little five minute segments with each of the presenters for their key take home uh, for uh, all their talks throughout the the two days. Uh, I also want to thank um, ATS and J President Kevin Bryles and uh, President Elect Jessica Springstead for uh, allowing this to to happen and uh, helping with uh, getting it to set up. Um, they also they're going to have a few minutes to chat with you on the podcast here as well about some things that they got going on. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to the 2020 ATSNJ Award recipients: uh, Chinoni Igwe, Nicole Thompson, Sarah Unger. Uh, the three of them won some scholarships as uh, the future of our profession. Uh, Dr. Scott Rodeo, the uh, Timothy Hosey Team Physician Award. Congratulations to to him. Uh, and then our our three uh, athletic trainer certified athletic trainer awards, Dr. Uh, Sorry, not doctor, uh, although he seems like a doctor. Uh, Mark Bramble, uh, the ATSNJ Presidential Award. Callie Whedon, who won the Distinguished Service Award. And last but certainly not least, uh, Christina Emmerich, who was inducted into the ATSNJ Hall of Fame this year. So uh, great things happening. I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to break it down, each individual segment with the key take-home. And I uh, hope you enjoy that. There's also lots of great content on the at Catalyzing ATS Twitter feed. I was live tweeting throughout the entire event, some of the key take-homes for each presenter. So definitely uh, check that out as well. That being said, enjoy these tips. All right, we're about to kick off ATSNJ 2020, and I'm glad to have uh, Kevin Bryles here. Kevin is the ATSNJ president. He's also the head athletic trainer uh, at uh, Delcy Regional School District, and um, really excited to have you on here talking about some of the, the key developments in New mm -hmm. Jersey in the, for the state of athletic training, not only recently, but also what kind of what's on the horizon. Mm -hmm. So you know, what would you say are some of the, you know, the top, maybe the top three developments over the last year and how that parlays into some action that's gonna happen this year? I tell you what, we were very, this past, uh, this past month I was able to join Governor Murphy for signing of two pieces of legislation. One that requires the use of a WEPO globe thermometer at all secondary school athletic events. And the second was policy and law now that requires at emergency action plans for all secondary school athletic events too. I, it's exciting to see that those facets are now law as just supposed to being a yep. best practice. This yeah. has the weight of the state behind it. We actually had a third piece of legislation pertaining to concussion and return to play. Um, there are a lot of caveats and there are a lot of little funny angles as far as trying to get that into play. Yeah. So. It was reintroduced this year, so I'm curious to see where that becomes. And, and you know, we're definitely going to be uh, 
be advocating for concussion policy to make sure our athletes are safe when they return to play. That's fantastic. And, you're, and with that, because there's so many different uh, intricate parts of it, mm -hmm. you're, I understand you're collaborating with the Brain Injury Alliance of New Jersey, Absolutely. as well as some other key partnerships, mm -hmm. which is key for getting it passable. You know, oh, everybody absolutely. has to be on the same page. Yeah. And it, it, it's not only from a medical standpoint as well, too, but, but it's impressive what, say, for instance, New Jersey Educational Association played a significant role in the passing of those two laws as well. And to have yeah. a group of that influence, of that magnitude on our side to make that happen, it, it's absolutely fantastic. That's exciting, exciting. And um, what are some of the key take-home in terms of our State Practice Act is currently in the process right now of, of hopefully changing potentially some of the key things that mm -hmm. um, what exactly are we looking to do with that update and, and are we identifying our, our patient scope or are there any other key areas we're trying to focus on well that patient scope is interesting if you look at it, if you look at all the medical professionals in the state of New Jersey ours in, is the only one that's limited to a specific subset okay, okay. so on our practice act it says athlete okay yeah. we're allowed to treat athletes we know how incredibly vague the term athlete is so you know Ultimately, our goal would be to change that term to individuals. Mm -hmm. um, that way, these individuals and so all members of our society can take advantage of the skill set of, of licensed athletic trainers yeah. and benefit from what we can bring to off, that we can you know, bring to the table. And to, to stay on that point, mm -hmm. I was excited uh, during the, the meeting as well today where uh, Linda Stanton talked about the kind of the best practices oh, for absolutely. all the emerging mm -hmm. settings. That's going to be an amazing resource for athletic trainers in New Jersey to have that. Mm -hmm. So it's great that, that the ATSJ has developed that. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, if and when the State Practice Act does get updated, mm -hmm. that's going to be huge to have those, those um, key guidance mm -hmm. to available to athletic trainers absolutely. so they can take action. Linda's skill set's incredible, and mm -hmm. and her background just so far in the in the medical sector, and and her experiences to as to utilizing our skill set at the hospital level in those quote unquote non traditional roles. It's a real it's a real benefit to our society to, to have a lady like her on our side. And ultimately, you know, we're seeing people you know hired by Amazon. You're seeing athletic trainers with the United States Navy SEALs. Those more abstract or non traditional positions are evolving. They're becoming mm -hmm. more and more common. So it's steps like this need to be taken to make sure everyone's safe and they can get out there and practice our great trade. Let's talk about two areas of excitement moving forward you mm -hmm. know, in 2020. First, uh, what are you most excited about the profession of athletic training in New Jersey in 2020? And second, what are you most excited pertaining to an ATSJ initiative, specifically our association? Let's start with our association. I, we're seeing incredible influx of our younger membership wanting to become in this, involved in the state society. We're seeing a lot of new faces coming in, and that's absolutely wonderful. They're young, they're energetic, they're incredibly intelligent, they're incredibly motivated. And when we look at those individuals, you, you kind of take... Um, you take a lot of comfort in the fact that we have individuals that are that motivated, they're able to come in and step up. And with the mentorship of our more experienced membership, I mean, the, the, the sky's the limit for the ATSNJ right now. Yeah. Um, so as far as the next year, that, that's I'm really excited about to see how our society and the profession in general continues to evolve. So it's good stuff. That's going to be a driving force mm -hmm. for, you know, athletic training in New Jersey is already seen as... I don't want to say the gold standard, but across the country, Gosh, a, lot, a, close, lot of respect, yeah. a lot of respect <laughs> for what we do. I'm very mm -hmm. proud to be a part of this state's um, athletic training community because it's, yeah. it, it's such an amazing, um, amazing path that we're taking mm -hmm. to spearhead a lot of change, but also really collaborate with other states around mm -hmm. the country, other aspects of the ATA. 
mm -hmm. to, to bring everybody together on the same pathway. It's not just Absolutely. us doing this. This mm -hmm. is about the bigger profession. We actually, we're, we're, we're developing a speaker in exchange with PATS, the Pennsylvania Athletic Trainers Society. I spoke with George Roberts, the current president of PATS, and he brought up the ideas, hey, how about you send one of our speakers from ATSNJ to speak at PATS, and then we'll send one of our PATS people over to you. And that way we get to share ideas, we get to see how, different, how a different state organization handles their programming, handles the education of professional members. And, and I'm, excited, I'm excited that George stepped forward and said, hey, listen, let's get the ball rolling on yeah. this. And, and so we're actually Doug Mann, who did a great job presenting today on vitamin D. Uh -huh. He's going to go out and patch this summer and present the same Evidence Bay program. So That's great. it's exciting. Yeah. Awesome. KB, thank you so much for everything thank you're doing. You. Right and back at you, Ryan. Great job here, too. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to, to roll this ATSNJ and 60 segment out. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of great things are going on in this state, and we're happy to share them with the world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, bud. Right. Take thank care. You. All right, I'm here now with Jess Springstead. She is the ATSNJ president-elect and the conference chair who is in charge of getting this whole thing going, uh, the big ATSNJ event. Um, Jess, you are the practice administrator for Outpatient Ambulatory Center at Bergen, New Bergen Newbridge Medical Center, yeah. um, in addition to your ATSNJ responsibilities. And uh, thank you for taking some time. We're going to learn a little bit more about uh, what you're excited about for this year's conference, as well as you know the things that kind of go into building an event like this. Because I know it's a, a lot more than we can fit into five minutes. Mm -hmm. But um, first of all, you know, what are you most excited about in the, the 2020 ATSNJ conference? Um, well, I've been a part of the conference itself um, as exhibitor chair for the last 12 years, so I know exactly what goes into it. But being uh, overseeing this entire thing is a quite a different experience. Um, so I was just really excited about managing, you know, along the entire program. Um, but what I'm really excited about is a lot of the changes that we've made to how are we um, getting our speakers, how are we upping our game as far as the evidence-based programs, um, and really trying to bring some more dynamic um, topics in that we are seeing at our regional and national levels. Um, so I was really excited to try this new format um, and also just see the feedback of are we still going to be successful with in-person education programs? Mm -hmm. Are we going to have to join the rest of the technology world and stick to webinars? Um, so I'm hoping to keep that face-to-face -face in some capacity. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's a lot of value in that, not just mm -hmm. for the education, but also the interactive learning that you get, sure. the networking. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a really important chance for people to come together right. annually. Um, you know, what do you see the, the, biggest, the biggest role that uh, this, this event plays in the state of New Jersey for athletic trainers. You know, what what is the reason why we make this such a priority to do such a great event? Well, this really is the one time of the year that we do try to get as much of the membership here. Um, because I agree, as a student, the big thing was going to these events to try to get a job somewhere. Yeah. And in my opinion, that face-to-face -face interaction is so much better than putting your resume in, people have no, uh, no idea who you are, maybe by your name, but yeah. might have re recognized you by face. Um, so that personal interaction, also getting to meet colleagues where your athletes are playing. You mm -hmm. know, sometimes you just never meet them, you don't travel to their schools, but you're actually asking them to care for your athletes yeah. and vice versa. Um, so there's another opportunity to say, oh, by the way, thanks so much six months ago for caring for that athlete of mine, you know, um, and just giving that interaction because there's obviously a lot of, um, 
um, interactional care when your athletes mm -hmm. are, are traveling and you're sort of leaning on and hoping that they'll provide the same level of care for, for your athletes. That's a great point. We are such mm -hmm. a close-knit profession, mm -hmm. especially, you know, one of the, I'm very proud to be a part of uh, the state of New Jersey athletic training community because mm -hmm. you have all, you and Kevin and everyone else involved with the ATSJ have done amazing things in building that, that community mm -hmm. because of the fact that we have to work with each other so collaboratively and sure. then there's opportunities for us to do that at these events as yeah, well too. Exactly. What was, what's been the, your favorite part of planning this whole event? Um, I think, um, that's a great question. Um, I think I was really interested in just trying to bring people from other than New Jersey and mm -hmm. the same kind of pool we kept pulling from <laughs> every year, um, at least for as long as I've been involved, to be our speakers. Yeah. Um, not saying that they aren't you know, very informative and mm -hmm. extremely knowledgeable. Um, but as we can see from some of the topics, these are things we have to keep up with. Yeah. And you may not necessarily ever directly deliver them, but you're going to get questions about them. And you have to be able to have at least some baseline information of where to direct them for more appropriate research or to be able to at least just say, I'm not sure what you just asked me, <laughs> but let me go research it a little yeah. bit more, at least know where to look. Um, so I think it's been really interesting to um, broaden not only the geography of where our speakers are coming from, not just leaning on our New Jersey constituents, but also um, bringing in some of the more um, uh, futuristic topics, for lack, yeah. lack of a better term. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, talking about ketaminoids. Uh, exactly. And, you know, Dr. Conan coming in is huge, mm -hmm. and, and then uh, Daryl Conway, you know, great people from other states that are resources for us. Exactly. It's uh, fantastic. Thank you for, for making that happen. Yeah. Um, last, last tip is, you know, if, if you're talking to other state uh, associates out there across the country, what is your biggest advice for others planning an event like this that you've learned? Uh, you've got to lean on your team. I am definitely not a micromanager um, in the office or or in any volunteer setting. I do like to know what's going on because I don't want to be blindsided by anything, but I'm totally fine with a need to know basis. If that's your expert area, that's your wheelhouse, you go right ahead, just let me know what you're doing. I'm happy to bounce ideas off. I'm not just kind of letting you go and by leaving you to the wolves, um, but I definitely lean on my team. If that's their role, you go for it. And um, because I cannot do all of this, uh, as obviously a full-time athletic trainer, adjunct professor, and most importantly, a mom of mm -hmm. seven-year-old twins, I can't handle it all. Yep. I've learned to delegate much better than I ever used to. Um, and I just hopefully um, the team, the group that we're working with appreciates that. They do feel like they have the support, but they're not being kind of directed what to do because otherwise might as well not have all these committee members. And some of them have been with us for even longer than me. Mm -hmm. um, and they deserve the, the recognition for the work that they do. That's a great leadership point, Jessica. And I'm really excited for uh, you know the rest of this year with, with Kevin. And then you're going to mm -hmm. be taking over as our, our president next year. So exciting things ahead, I'm sure, with that. Thank you for uh, allowing this uh, podcast uh, summary to happen. Mm -hmm. I think we're excited to share the great things that we're putting together in New Jersey with AT all around the country and thank you for your contributions to the event. Thanks thank to you too. You know, it's nice to be able to get this out to even people who aren't able to make it. Yep. So you at least get a little bit of a taste of what they're missing and hopefully encourage them to try their best to be here next year. So Absolutely. thanks for your well, time. Looking forward to a great event. Thank you. I'm here with Doug Mann who is the Associate Professor and Clinical Education Coordinator for Athletic Training Education Program at Rowan University. And Doug, uh, this weekend your talk is Vitamin D Deficiency and its Relationship to Injury, Gender, Race, and the Sports Season. Thanks for taking a few moments here with the Catalyzing Podcast. Couple key takeaways from your talk. Um, first of all, what are the most important signs and symptoms that we should look for when it comes to working with those who might be vitamin D deficient? 
So there's several things to look for. Uh, one of them is fatigue. Um, if they're getting fatigue a little bit more frequent than some of their peers. Uh, uh, muscle joint pain, aches would certainly be one. Uh, sickness, and then, uh, and what I mean by sickness is repeated sickness in the sense of that they're getting upper respiratory infection and it just doesn't seem to get better, or they're getting repeated upper respiratory infections. But things like low back pain, joint pain, uh, can all be particularly uh, indicative of vitamin D deficiency. So really a whole range of, of symptoms that are affiliated with a lot of other things too and you kind of look at the big picture to, to think that might be something going on. That is correct and I think that, that one of the things you can look at with a population, particularly African Americans, those with darker skin have more susceptibility to vitamin D deficiency so mm -hmm. certainly if you see in that population some of those signs and symptoms that would certainly raise a red flag. Well, how um, if in those that we're dealing with who are injured, if they happen to be vitamin D deficient, how can that affect their recovery after injury? And answer, that's a great question because uh, that is a continual uh, research question. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at with that that we seem to, or at least the research seems to point at, uh, is muscle recovery. Uh, and muscle injury. And there seems to be a role in vitamin D deficiency and muscle recovery. Now you think vitamin D, right? You think calcium, you think bone. Yeah. And yes, there seems to be a role there, but that research is a little bit more mixed, actually. It's kind of interesting uh, that if, so what I would say, if bone, if there's a bone injury that doesn't seem to be healing at the rate that you would expect it to heal, vitamin D testing is certainly something you want to look at. Okay. But if you have uh, an, an athlete who you know there's going to be going through a point where they're uh, going to be experiencing DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness, uh, that might be a time to supplement vitamin D, particularly in those that may be deficient. And, and what, what are your recommendations in terms of supplementation? What are you typically recommending or what uh, types of food? Yeah, well, so... Um, food is, is a, a way to get it. It's not the best way. Okay. Uh, so certainly you can look at fortified milk, um, cod liver oil, which is certainly not going to be popular, but foods like salmon and things like that will have high vitamin D contents. But typically we'll see it from the sun is your best way. And then vitamin D supplementation. And probably the biggest takeaway, if they're going to vitamin D supplement, it needs to be with vitamin D3. Uh, longer half-life stays uh, more in the bloodstream than a vitamin D2 which is available, and sometimes you'll see docs prescribe D2 in kind of macro dosages, mm -hmm. bolus dosages, but uh, vitamin D3 is where they want to supplement. That's great to know, um, great tips. And, and one last thing, you know, how can athletic trainers best be a resource for their athletes regarding vitamin D supplementation? You know, besides you know, promoting the things you just spoke to, you know, how can we best be a resource for them? I, I think that uh, having vitamin D deficiency on your radar is important. Does every athlete need to take vitamin D? No. Uh, but could it delay healing? Could it make them more susceptible to injury? Can it make them more susceptible to uh, immune problems down the road? Yes. And so being able to say, you know, something doesn't add up, let's check you for vitamin D. Or you know, you're of a population that, that has a level of vitamin D deficiency, potentially. Let's get that tested uh, so rather than um, not knowing that, that cause. So I think that uh, having that in the back of your mind as a potential and then bringing it up to your physician as a possible way to test is, is always a good idea. Awesome. Great tips, Doug. Thank you very much for taking some time. All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, now we're here with Dr. Jeff Conan, who is the clinical professor and director of the DAT program at Florida International University. And here at ATSNJ, you were the keynote speaker, and uh, your talk was uh, called Cannabis as an Intervention for Patient Care. Thanks for taking a few minutes to, to give some quick hitters on the recap here, uh, Dr. Conan. The first thing I want to talk about is 
you know, what is it that athletic trainers really need to know when it comes to the, the endocannabinoid system, ECS, um, and the therapeutic benefits of cannabis? Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, you know, this is new to all of us. I would venture to say most, if not all of us, did not learn mm -hmm. about the endocannabinoid system when we were in school. And it was only discovered in the late 80s and early 90s out of some scientists in Israel. And it, so it's slowly catching on here. But the truth of the matter is, it's the foundation of this, what we call CBD craze that's out there. And it's the fastest growing industry in this country, CBD and cannabis that is. And this comes from a plant, but the plant has similar properties to what we have in our body, mm -hmm. which are the cannabinoids. Okay. And so really it's imperative that we have a better understanding of what the endocannabinoid system is, mm -hmm. what it's proposed to do or not do for that matter, and then we can better understand why so many patients seem to make claims that many of their symptoms that they've had for a long, long time or pills that they've been taking for a long, long time are, are no longer present for them. And, and granted, there, there may be uh, not a lot of clinical trials that we'd like to use to compare this to to see why is this working. But boy, I tell you what, the patient testimonials an N of one and an N of one and an N of one just adds up that there's gotta be something there. It can't be coincidence. And I think we owe it upon ourselves as the practitioners and the people they trust in their healthcare to learn this system and give them good factual sound current advice. Yeah, and you mentioned during your talk that the science has to, to catch up with the, the use you know, that's Absolutely. happening out there. Absolutely. We're kind of behind the ball on that. And you also talked about the importance of, of healthcare professionals in general, but athletic trainers needing to be able to field these questions. Um, you had some good stats about you know a very low percentage of med schools are actually teaching this and whatnot. Um, what do athletic trainers really need to know right from the start, especially when it comes to labeling, um, in terms of does it enhance performance? You spoke to that a little bit too. Correct, correct. So I think what athletic trainers need to know, and, and there's, so first of all, there are the clinicians yeah. in the field. They are receiving questions day in and day out from their patients and their athletes of all ages and all levels about different forms of cannabis or CBD. Mm -hmm. Is this good? Is this particular thing I have in my hand, what does it do? Will it come up positive in a drug test? Will it help my performance? These are things that unless we truly factually learn and study like we do how to do a knee exam or knee rehabilitation based on tissues of uh, tissue repair and principles, once we know that, we can give them better answers to better understand this. But where does that come from? That comes from being educated. Mm -hmm. And it's not just a Google search. There's a lot of stuff out there and it's hard to know what's factual and what's not, what's biased and what's not. Yeah. We need our educators to step up as well. And these are our, our educators at professional levels, post-professional and professional development levels. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't just be one or two or three people out there talking about this. Everyone has to learn. And whether you agree or disagree or you have certain built-in perceptions, which most people do. Mm -hmm. They have certain knowledge and certain perceptions. You have to step up the game and know what the facts are. You have a responsibility to educate your students, and we all have a responsibility as practitioners to educate ourselves so that we can have a good trusting relationship with our patients. And that's so crucial to have that trust and rapport built so that they feel comfortable asking you that question. Um, and then the judgment isn't there, and athletic trainers are in a great place to do that in many times in the role that they play in their settings. Um, last thing about labeling, because you said oftentimes you don't really know exactly what's going to be in the product. Yeah, um, tell true. us about the QR code uh, sure. deal. What do athletic trainers need to know about that? Sure. So the FDA does not regulate CBD yeah. products. So the only form of regulation we have 
are the individuals who make the products and sell the products and the credibility that they stand behind it. Mm -hmm. The only way to understand if a product is credible and if the ingredients are actually accurate from what they say on top of the bottle that it's in, for example, or the package that it's in, is to use a QR code, match it up to your camera on your phone, and it will take you to a certified lab report. That lab report will tell you what's in the product. So you'll know what's in it, you'll know if it matches what's on the label, which most mm -hmm. cases it does, and if there's no QR code, that's a warning sign that you have no idea what's in that product that you could potentially be purchasing. It's fantastic information, and there's way more that we need to learn that's uh, not able to be covered in this summary. Tell us real quick about the website uh, that you have and where can athletic trainers find more information? Yes, yeah, so our website is phd420.org, mm -hmm. and our goal there is to provide uh, factual, non-biased education on all forms of cannabis to all individuals, healthcare providers or patients of the like. And um, that's one of our encouraging signs and places to go. You can sign up for our mail list and we'll keep you updated on current changes that are happening in the world of cannabis. That's fantastic. Dr. Conan, thank you so much for taking some My time. My pleasure. pleasure. Thanks for having you. me. Absolutely. Next up, I'm here with Steve Berendika. Steve, your talk today was for our young professionals, uh, and that was a fantastic audience for you to have. Uh, what you need to know as an athletic trainer in your first year as a professional, which is super important to, to have those discussions. Steve, I understand that you're the athletic trainer at Westfield School District, yep. and you're also the ATSNJ treasurer and the corporate sponsor uh, chair. So uh, not only uh, great things that you're doing at your school, but thank you for your contributions to our state association mm -hmm. in those capacities. So um, let's talk about your, your presentation today. Um, what are the common obstacles that first year's athletic trainers typically face that you spoke about? Yeah, so I think, I, I think the, the main thing for us was just trying to cover, you know, just some things that maybe aren't taught in educational programs. I think there's a lot of didactic knowledge kind of things that they mentioned um, or that you learn while you're in school, but there's some things that, you know, you really don't get exposed to a, a lot. So I think one of, the, one of the major takeaways for us was explaining, you know, how do you build a support system once you graduate, right? Everyone yeah. graduates and, you know, maybe a lot of times we don't express and say, you know, listen, it's okay to graduate and maybe not know, you know, everything, right? Mm -hmm. It's okay to kind of, you know, rely on others for help. Um, so one of the main components of what, you know, what I spoke about was, listen, there is what I, could, what I, what I said, you know, build a tribe, right? Or uh -huh. kind of like find where your tribe is. Love right? that. Who, can yeah. you, who, who can you reach out to? You know, you can ask questions or if you have any concerns, hey, you know, I got this going on, you know, and kind of, you know, telling them to you know to reach out and not be afraid to do that um, another thing that we you know that i you know tried to, to talk to them a lot about was networking right yeah. the importance of networking um, i feel like yes in school you know maybe we stress it but maybe not to the degree of how important it really is um, and i was explaining to them listen networking can get you far you know not only in, in our field but you know but in life um, and having them, you know, be a little bit more open with, listen, walking up to, you know, there's so many resources here through ATSNJ yeah. where I feel like maybe the students don't know that, right? There's so many NATA Hall of Fame members and ATSNJ and EATA yep. Hall of Fame members and individuals who have given so much to our field who have been around for such a long time. And I think these are really resources that maybe schools don't touch upon mm -hmm. that students have an opportunity, you know, to, to get exposed to. And then some of the other stuff that I mentioned were, you know, more of like a, like a professional kind of, um, kind of advice, you know, how do I apply for licensure? You know, how do yeah. you know, where do I look for, you know, when I'm looking for jobs? And, you know, what is the interview process like? What is a resume like? You know, yeah. what is NPI? What's professional liability? So little things that maybe, again, aren't really stressed that much while you're in school. And once the kids, you know, once the students graduate, they're faced with making all these decisions and, you know, what's professional liability? You know, yep. is it important for me to have? Is it not important for me to have? So. Yeah. All these kinds of things. That's a, that's a great point. I think of it almost as like crowdsourcing our 
our um, ability to you know, understand what we do as athletic trainers because mm -hmm. you can't just know it all your own, especially as a young professional. You and I both know, like, when mm -hmm. you come out of school, especially if you're successful, you feel pretty good about yourself, and then, you know, reality hits, and you're in mm -hmm. your first job, and you realize there's so much more you need to know. So being able to leverage your network and build those allies and those, those resources around you mm -hmm. is, is a crucial, crucial step for young professionals to help them be successful quicker versus making a lot more mistakes and then learning from them And they later. need to know that they're not alone in those sentiments, exactly. right? And a lot of times, you know, a lot of the athletic trainers that are around are just so well composed because that's just what we're taught to yep. do. Um, and they maybe don't know what you're thinking, you know, in your mind. Hey, it's okay, you know, to not know everything. Yeah. You know, go back to the basics and then kind of build from there, use your resources, and do the best thing you can for your athlete. Yeah, and you made a great point, too, about talking about you know, things such as MPI number, state licensure. Um, you know, I, I do a, a lot of a lot of hiring, a lot of interviewing, and I'm usually one of the first people that person has ever had a conversation about that stuff with. And, mm -hmm. you know, having those conversations at the educational program level or just more readily available and, and easier to understand, because sometimes it can be a little complicated. Why do I have to do this? What do they need from me? So mm -hmm. I'm glad that you spoke to that and about you know them being proactive and trying to understand it just to make that transition to practice so much easier. Yeah, I think it's all about making sure they're more prepared when they graduate, mm -hmm. you know, to really tackle any obstacle that comes your way. Absolutely. What would you say are the top two tips you would give to any first year athletic trainer? I think, again, the bi my biggest one is building your tribe, right? Build the support system for you um, to make sure that you're surrounded with people who are going to help you out, yep. and, and not only in, in your field, but in, but in life. Um, and I think one of the other ones is just don't be afraid to make mistakes. The only way for you to really learn and to progress and develop as a professional is to go through different situations and learn how to become better. I love that. And when you make those mistakes and you use them for opportunities for growth, and then you have other people support you in helping mm -hmm. that decision learn you know that process learn uh, better for next time mm -hmm. that's how we get better as a profession and um, I'll, I'll just kind of wrap things up with you made a great point earlier about young professionals you know learn how to approach other people especially those who have been doing this for 20 30 40 years mm -hmm. don't be afraid to go up and extend your arm and say hey my name is Steven yep. and you are oh yes I've heard about you I appreciate what you do um, you know I'm excited to, to do what I do and just ha show that excitement that you bring Mm -hmm. to those more seasoned athletic trainers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're not young professionals anymore, we're seasoned, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so having the ability to do that as a young professional and just go up and be confident, not cocky, but confident mm -hmm. and, and just passionate about what you do, we love to see that. You know? And having them understand that the start of them building that tribe starts here with ATSMJ. Absolutely, 100%. Mm -hmm. Steve, thank you so much no for problem. your uh, contributions. For Absolutely. It. Thank you. All right, next up, I'm here with Doug Stringham, and you did a collaborative with Steve Berendica, specifically focusing on our young professional group, which is fantastic that ATSNJ gave you the platform to do that. Um, Doug, you are an athletic trainer with Premier Sports Medicine currently, and you're really looking to share some messages on how to best build and utilize your toolbox, especially uh, for those younger professionals. So, you know, share your strategy for you as a young AT and, and growing your career and for those other young ATs out there, what has your strategy been to develop your professional toolbox? Yeah, it's been actually very interesting and Steve did a really good job with Kate describing the basics mm -hmm. of different types of toolboxes and I describe a toolbox as the base platform for what you're going to build off of. So he talked a lot about a professional toolbox or how to build your CEUs, your licensure toolbox, so yeah. a different type of it, more of that back-end administration. Yeah. Well, 
I was focusing a lot more on that clinical toolbox. So how you're going to build the way you would make an exercise program more Great. assessing or planning in the long term. So the number one way that I think that I told them today, especially for anyone out there to build their clinical toolbox and specifically clinician, mm -hmm. it could apply other stuff is you need to ask yourself two questions. The number one thing is you need to ask why and have intent behind it. Mm -hmm. So why am I doing what I'm doing? What is the reason for what I want to do? What population do I work with? What setting am I at? Am I at a high school? Am I at a college? Am I at a collegiate thing? Am I at a pro setting? What do I need to know to be the initial part of my toolbox and then go from there? Yeah. And then second thing is you need to have intent. So what do I intend to do with that information afterwards? So. I intend to work with high school people mm -hmm. and I intend to work with probably 30 or 40 in a certain amount of time frame per hour. So I'm going to get these X certifications from there. And then I said from what I've grown for, I know that personally I've went towards helping people on a different end. Mm -hmm. I'm expanding athletic training outside of the scope of its normal practice. Great. I'm working a lot more with, I previously worked with neuromuscular MS Parkinson stroke people, but now I'm trying to work with more like lifestyle change. So to build that toolbox, it's a lot more, you know, movement screens or hands-on techniques. Mm -hmm. While someone who wants to be an AD, their thing should be, you know, get a master's in education and learn how to go to administrative events with other collaborative teachers and other principals and maybe other administrative people. So mm -hmm. it's a very different pathway, but each is a specific toolbox. So that's my best advice is know where you're going to be, what you want to do in the next three to five years so that you can have the intent behind what it's going to be. And if you keep asking yourself, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? Why do I want to do it? You'll have a much better understanding of where you want to go. I love that you speak to the importance of knowing your purpose and, and having the why behind everything you do. Because if you if you act with purpose, and, and whether it's the clinical choices you make, the professional choices you make, the networking choices you make, if you, if you do it strategically, it, it can make a big difference in your positive outcomes and your ability to make an impact in your community as an athletic trainer, in your organization, um, really being purposeful with it and, and having intent versus just kind of haphazardly and yeah, going so along for the ride. They rolled their ankle. Yeah. I'm going to do four ankle. Is that always what you do? Exactly. First, and that's just an athletic training example, but that could be with anything. Yep. Any professional thing you can like get a, involved with. Yeah. Oh, the person asked me a question. Were you, were you listening? Did you question what they were doing? Do you question their decision of what they decided to do with an athlete or with a patient or with the person they talked to about anything? Uh -huh. So you need to always question that. I, I agree with you 100%. That's why I was saying it like, it's surprising, but like, I guess communication skills isn't always something that we're taught, yeah. especially in any profession, not just ours. So being able to be that person that actually pays attention to that is like super key. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a long career ahead of you, hopefully doing uh, some really great things. How do you anticipate your toolbox changing over the course of your career? What do you, what do you see that as potentially, you know, the way that your toolbox clinically and non-clinically will change as you grow professionally? It's going to always change depending on who you're around and what people you meet. And I think like those four or five people that become part of your tribe or your group, mm -hmm. that's how it's going to mainly change. The people that I want to affect positively in my life or anyone else's life, I'm going to need to specifically adapt to that situation. That's how it will change. Yeah. And it's, it probably ends up being, I know when I'm probably 30 or 40, it's going to end up being more about relationships than it is about you know, the education of how to treat someone properly. It's going to be about like, how do I help those people grow? So uh -huh. I imagine the toolbox is going to be whatever things I can do with this group of people we're building up now that because you're on top of them helping them, it's going to be about 
what things I can learn to give to them. That's my giving back, I assume, yep. will be the number one step next is whatever things I can learn in the toolbox to help other people, because you're hopefully at that point now mm -hmm. where now you're not taking, you're giving away, then that would be, I think, the main thing I'd be building in my toolbox. Yeah. And that is that is a typical career journey. You know, First year, you're a sponge and you're absorbing and you're absorbing and you're adapting and you're planning, and then you grow, and then you get to that point later in your career where you start to give back and you start to you know, share that knowledge you've learned over the years with the younger professionals and help them not make the mistakes that you made yourself. And you know, like you said, it really comes down to what are your goals at that time and are you willing to be adaptable as times change or do you just keep doing the same thing you've always done and, and potentially stunt your ability to be happy or be successful. So I'm glad that you spoke with our young professionals about that. Uh, very, very important messaging and um, I look forward to hearing some more stuff you put out in the future. Thank you, I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks That's for being part of this, Doug. You too. All right, I'm here with Dr. Drew Stapleton. Today at uh, ATSNJ, your talk was on movement quality and athletic performance. Does it matter? The, the, looking at the correlations between those. Correct. Uh, Drew, yep. you are a, um, uh, an assistant professor faculty at Ryder University that in the correct. Health Sciences, in health uh, sciences. Program. That's yeah. correct. Yep. Absolutely. So I uh, appreciate you taking some time to Absolutely. recap. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is uh, and get your thoughts on, you know, what do you mean by fundamental movement ability? Uh, yeah, great question. So fundamental movement ability is, is rooted in the seven fundamental movement patterns. So squat, lunge, um, bending, reaching, pulling, pushing, mm -hmm. and then being able to apply those movement patterns to perform some function, whether that is being a softball player or a baseball player or being a field hockey player or a law enforcement official or a firefighter. It's basically those the assessment of those movement patterns mm -hmm. in performance of whatever that function or that activity is at that time. What it takes is some balance between mobility and stability at various body segments and various mm -hmm. planes over the course of that movement through the kinetic chain. And in your talk, you talked about uh, the research you've done utilizing the FMS mm -hmm. as well as the mm -hmm. upper extremity and lower extremity motor control uh, tests yep, as well. The Y balance test. Uh, the yep. Y balance test, yep. and then your performance testing. So tell yep. us about the, yep. what you found with that, the correlation so, or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah, lack thereof is really what it came down to. So yeah. we had we did a little study funded graciously by the ATSNJ where we looked at functional movement or movement quality, which is which is movement competency or movement movement. Uh, Functional movement, mm -hmm. upper extremity stability, lower extremity stability okay. in throwing athletes, so baseball and softball players. Uh, we had about 38, so we had 23 baseball players. We had 15 or so softball players um, that we did FMS. We did a wide balance test lower, wide balance test upper, and then a bunch of athletic performance tests or measures of athletic performance. Mm -hmm. So vertical jump, pro agility, uh, and then a rotational power test with a medicine ball throw, which simulates batting and bat, bat velocity mm -hmm. and bat power. Um, what we found, no relationships, no correlations in baseball players, and then we found some negative correlations in our softball players looking at uh, reach direction in anterior reach for the lower body Y-balance test, and we saw some differences in, there it is, um, agility, so that as performance, or as agility got better, reach went down, mm -hmm. and as rotational power improved, uh, reach went down and trunk stability went down. One of the measures of the trunk stability push-up and FMS. Yeah. So this variation between stability and mobility, mm -hmm. that if you're too stable and too rigid or too tight, for lack of a better description, 
does that have a negative impact on, it, it seems to anyway, have an impact on the ability for performance measures where, mm -hmm. where that mobility might be more important. Um, we saw in the ankle for the anterior reach direction mm -hmm. that mobility went up, performance went down, the performance mm -hmm. measures went down. So something's going on with the ankle, we think that it affects the ability of, to transfer that energy through the kinetic chain to uh -huh. the body to perform those measures. And it was interesting too because when you talked about the composite score, you had those negative correlations, but when you broke down to shoulder mobility and active straight leg raise, you did find mm -hmm. some positive mm -hmm. correlations. Yeah, so the active straight leg raise uh, and the hurdle step were two of the two of the exercises in FMS, two of the movements, that they were the most significant predictors of total what we called total athletic performance. Uh -huh. Total athletic performance we defined as vertical jump, rotational power in both directions, right and left and we subtract agility timers, subtract the pro-agility score from that. Uh -huh. So really what, th what that's getting at as is uh, hamstring flexibility and hip mobility and then uh, hip trunk, some trunk stability and that some dynamic in there are going to be this, the strongest correlators, correlations rather, the strongest predictors of performance. And that's a great start for, uh, for your future research. I know you're working mm -hmm. on some things. Mm -hmm. Can we just do one last takeaway? Of sure. When an athletic trainer is looking at all the, the various systems out there yeah. for screening and, and, and baseline mm -hmm. uh, movement mm -hmm. assessment, you know, what, what approaches do you recommend that they take in determining mm -hmm. which ones to use mm -hmm. and how to implement those? I think what, where, where it comes into play is that we're really looking at it. What you want to do is, is ones that you're most comfortable with. If you know what to look for and you're comfortable with assessing an overhead squat, you know the certain segments to look for, let's say. Or you're comfortable with a single leg squat and you know what those components are. It doesn't, don't just buy into a total movement assessment package because that's the most popular one to do it. Right. Look at the research, ask questions, talk to your colleagues, talk to your peers, build in your performance team. So that's your strength coach, the position coaches, or the, the athletic coaches themselves that might know more about the technique, the, psych the psychologists and psychiatrists, the nutritionists, all that coming together collectively can help you figure out what's the best way to assess your patient or your athlete in Fantastic. order to provide optimal care. Fantastic advice, Drew. Thank yeah. you so much uh, for sharing this. There's a lot more Absolutely. that athletic trainers can dive into. Thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, next up, I'm here with Dr. Bradford Tucker. Uh, Dr. Tucker is a surgical sports medicine physician with Rothman Orthopedics, and his talk uh, this year at ATSNJ was on the clinical efficiency of intraarticular mesenchymal stem cells for the treatment of knee osteoarthritis. So, uh, Dr. Tucker, thanks for taking a few minutes here. Your, your talk was fantastic, and I want to just get to some key takeaways. What is the latest evidence when it comes to stem cell therapies in treating OA? Yeah, so uh, the big thing that we just finished a randomized placebo-controlled level one study, and it's really never been done before. There was a lot of literature out there that stem cells may help people with osteoarthritis, but we really didn't know for sure. Mm -hmm. So this is the first study where we randomized people to getting placebo or stem cells. And we did actually find that stem cells do help people with osteoarthritic pain out to about a year over placebo. So um, that was a positive effect in the right direction. We're still at the infancy though of stem cell development because the study also showed that we had no changes on MRI. Mm -hmm. So there was no current reparative ability of the stem cells. It didn't repair or restore the cartilage, didn't change the synovium or the edema in the knee. It just currently helps with pain. 
Yeah, and that was the interesting thing. I was uh, when you said there was no change in MRI, um, and you mentioned the anti-inflammatory properties of the, the stem cells. Uh, and can you also t uh, mention uh, talk about the SVF injection as well, uh, particularly adipose tissue? Correct. Yeah. So we uh, in this particular study, we basically took uh, we did a liposuction mm -hmm. around the uh, abdominal area, and we enzymatically removed the fat to get what we call the stromovascular fraction. It's where all the uh, sort of mesenchymal stem cells are. Mesenchymal means it becomes musculoskeletal tissue and has the progenitor cells, and that's the material that we used to inject into arthritic knees. Fantastic. Um, definitely uh, an opportunity for athletic trainers to study those a, a little more and work with their local physicians to understand those procedures that are being done for their athletes. Let's talk about uh, some of your procedures, um, especially you know talking about autograft versus allograft, um, the, how that compares to the microfracture uh, procedures. You know, what are you utilizing? What are you seeing right now? Yeah, so it really depends. Uh, when it gets to the point where we have a cartilage damage in an athlete that is symptomatic that's going to undergo surgery. The microfracture really is a procedure that only has been holding up for about two years. So a, a more long-term uh, um, method to fix the problem would be doing some either um, what we call Macy, which where you take chondrocytes out and you put them in a matrix and that matrix is used to repair the damage or we are um, using an allograft tissue where we would take fresh osteochondral allograft and transplant it into a patient. It really depends on the size of the lesion and the location. But uh, these are definitely some newer techniques and athletic trainers are definitely going to be involved with these patients because there's going to be a, a huge uh, rehabilitation process. I mean it takes probably six months to a year to rehab from these type of injuries. Right. And you also talked today, I think it's important to mention about uh, your stressing of the importance of improving alignment as well. If you're going to fix these, but you don't address alignment, you're not really addressing a lot of the problem. Yeah, so a lot of these athletes have, they develop these chondral lesions because they maybe have malalignment or ligament instabilities. So if we don't, we have to address the malalignment instability at the same time, or the lesions can just keep happening, or it won't, it won't, it will fail. Yeah, a great, great point, and that's where the athletic trainers can also come in. I mean, you have the surgical interventions you mentioned to, to do that, um, as well as the, the rehab and biomechanical interventions that athletic trainers, physical therapists can do, and that's where we have to work as a team with these. Uh, yeah. Last question, you know, what are you most excited about the future of, of this um, when it comes to surgical uh, treatment of OA? Yeah, I know, you know, we are at the infancy with stem cells. I do believe that someday we're going to figure this out. We're going to get the correct cell line, the correct progenitor cell, and we're going to mix it with the correct mixture of growth factors, and we're going to be able to probably repair and, and restore things someday. It's hard to predict when this is going to happen, hopefully in our lifetime, but maybe, you know, maybe 50 mm -hmm. years from now we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah. But we're definitely at the infancy of this stem cell revolution. Awesome, uh, awesome. Well, Dr. Tucker, thank you so much for uh, sharing thank this for uh, great me. information with athletic trainers at ATSNJ this year. Great, thank you. Now I'm here with Daryl Conway. Daryl is a Senior Associate Athletic Director and Chief Health and, Wellness, Health and Welfare Officer at the University of Michigan. And your talk this weekend at ATSNJ is titled, Take Action, Opioid Overdose Education, Prevention and Management very crucial uh, conversations that we have to be having as athletic trainers these days. So Daryl, thank you for bringing that to ATS&J. Let's start off real quick. Uh, in what ways can an athletic trainer be an integral 
member of the healthcare team in developing strategies to really deal with this opioid crisis? I think the athletic trainer needs to be a part of an interdisciplinary healthcare team. Um, I talk about prevention of opioid overdose, mm -hmm. uh, especially in your athletes. It's not just the physicians. Physicians may prescribe the pills, but everybody along that uh, interdisciplinary healthcare team that's around that, that athlete needs to be aware of what's going on and needs to have a, a stakeholder in preventing. So the athletic trainer needs to work with the physician, talk mm -hmm. to the physician um, about what are they prescribing, needs to work with the parents, work with the athlete for a pain management plan, um, work with the surgeon, work with the outpatient. Everybody that's around that athlete needs to be aware of what's going on from a pain management standpoint um, and education, communication as to how you're managing um, the pain. Absolutely, and you, you spoke to a lot of those prevention strategies in your talk, and you also said about something the, the changes when it comes to the way they prescribe uh, pain management, pain, pain skills, you know, changing it, going to seven days and then down even potentially to three days. Can you speak to that as well? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of legislation, a lot of rules. Every state has different um, parameters around uh, the prescription of opioids. Most uh, do a seven-day limit. Mm -hmm. The most that you can ever prescribe opioid is for seven days. Most are, are moving that back down to three days. Um, anything over three days requires a ton of paperwork. Um, so most doctors are staying at three days. Mm -hmm. And then after three days, they have to refill that prescription, which takes some paperwork to do. Um, and really, part of that is coming up with, a, again, a comprehensive pain management plan. Yeah. Of it's not just, We understand it's not just three days and that's it. It's a comprehensive plan for managing uh, opioids and managing pain over a long term. Absolutely, and utilizing those non-opioid -op approaches, therapeutic interventions to help to, to control pain and, and give them pro um, promote, promote their progress and their recovery. So Correct. Um, let's say an athletic trainer does suspect uh, an opioid o uh, abuse situation with one of their athletes. You know, what are some effective strategies they should take in addressing that? I think first you need to speak with the athlete. Yeah. Um, open, honest communication, I'm concerned about you. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned of what I'm seeing. Um, you need to speak with roommates. You need to speak with parents. You need to speak with the physician. Um, and, and again, this is no different than if you, as an athletic trainer, if you suspect an injury. You have a whole interdisciplinary healthcare team mm -hmm. that's around that athlete for ankle sprain. It's no different than if you suspect um, depression, anxiety, eating disorder. We have in, in our minds what that interdisciplinary team is. That this is just one piece of that puzzle that you, you utilize the interdisciplinary team. Yeah, that's super, super important. Worst case, let's say you come across a situation where you're dealing with an overdose uh, and you spoke to the ACTION acronym. Uh, speak to that uh, as well. So ACTION is just a simple acronym to remember what to do in an overdose. Um, a stands for try to arouse the person, shake, shout, sternal rub. Mm -hmm. um, C stands for check for signs of opioid overdose, your pinpoint pupils, your blue lips, your respiratory mm -hmm. arrest, respiratory distress, your death rattle, your gurgling sound. Um, C also stands for call 911. Mm -hmm. okay, you want to get EMS there as soon as possible. Um, T stands for treat your primary objectives. Your primary objectives being circulation, airway, breathing. Um, I make it very a, a big point of opioid overdose is a respiratory emergency, not a Narcan emergency. Yeah. If you just breathe for the, for the patient, um, they will survive. So I hammer that of just breathing for the patient. Um, I stands for intranasal, intramuscular, uh, Narcan, administer that as soon as it gets there. 
O stands for oxygen, breathe for the mm -hmm. patient. N stands for Narcan again after two to three minutes. If um, they haven't started breathing, give another dose uh, of Narcan. That's a great way to remember it. Um, simple process in, in a stressful situation. And you spoke in the beginning about, you know, in times of stress, we kind of fall back to what we've trained and practiced. So can we just finish up with that? You know, what do you think is the most important takeaway for athletic trainers, what they need to practice to be prepared for a situation where they might come across this? Like I said, Narcan overdoses is, is a respiratory emergency. It's not yeah. a Narcan emergency. You need to practice your, your BVM skills, your bag valve mask skills. You need to practice actually getting air into a patient and being proficient in utilizing a bag valve mask. Awesome. Daryl, thank you so much. Great information and uh, look forward to learning a little more about it as we dive into it. Thanks thank for you. being on it. Yeah. Next up, we have Dr. Scott Dankel. Uh, Dr. Dankel is an assistant professor at the Department of Health and Exercise Science at Rowan University. And uh, Scott, you're gonna be talking about BFR application, uh, safety and efficacy here at ATSNJ. Thanks for a few minutes. Yeah. Um, let's really get into what are the key benefits of utilizing BFR, blood flow restriction therapy, uh, in your rehab? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, the main benefit is that if we apply it during different modes of exercise, we see benefits that we normally wouldn't see with that type of exercise. So for example, um, if we have somebody that's injured and they're cast immobilized, we can just apply blood flow restriction, just repeated inflations and deflations okay. without even doing any exercise. Uh, and we can largely attenuate losses in both muscle size and strength. Um, as we continue on, if people are able to do low intensity aerobic exercise, like things like walking and cycling at a very low intensity, mm -hmm. um, by applying blood flow restriction, we can see small increases in both muscle size and strength. Whereas if we do that same protocol without the restrictive stimulus, there's gonna be no, no real adaptations there. Uh, but the largest benefits come when we can combine it with low intensity resistance exercise. So things like uh, 20 to 30% of an individual's maximum strength. Mm -hmm. And the main benefit there is we can largely reduce the amount of joint stress that's placed on the individual, but at the same time still see the same increases in muscle size as if they were lifting heavier weights. So it's, it's kind of a way to artificially mimic a higher intensity of exercise, even though we're not lifting with heavier weights. That's great, and you know, since you started researching BFR, what are some things that's changed, whether it's application or protocols? Um, so I would say one of the biggest things is uh, there's a push towards making sure that people are using relative pressures. So okay. early on, what people would do is a lot of people would use just a standard pressure for everyone. So let's say everybody gets 200 millimeters of mercury of pressure. Um, but since then, uh, what we've come to notice is uh, there's a big difference depending upon the equipment that you're using and the size of the person's limb that you're applying it to. So 200 millimeters of mercury with a very wide cuff to a person with a very narrow arm is gonna be a, an, an extremely high amount of pressure applied versus if you use a very narrow cuff and apply it to someone with a very large limb, yeah. uh, that might barely even be a restrictive stimulus. Uh, so there's a large difference between um, the equipment being used, the size of the person's limb, and making sure that we're applying pressures relative to the equipment and the, the limb size of the individual. That's a great point, and in your talk, you speak to the, the importance of, of safety and, and use as well, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that ties into it. What are the key things when it comes to you know safety precautions? What should athletic trainers be keeping in mind? Yeah, definitely. So it's it's really easy um, in a research setting where it's it's very easy to take somebody's specific arterial occlusion pressure and pre prescribe a percentage of that. Yeah. Um, 
most people probably aren't going to be wheeling out this big air compressor machine <laughs> that we use in research settings. So for yeah. more practical settings, um, there's, a, there's a couple different ways that people will apply it. I think the easiest thing to do is, uh, the goal of blood flow restriction is to limit arterial blood flow, not completely occlude it. Mm -hmm. um, so if you apply the restrictive cuff on the top of someone's arm or leg, just making sure that they have a pulse distal to wherever you're applying the cuff. Um, if you can't detect a pulse, then that means you're probably completely cutting off arterial blood flow, which, which is not the goal. Yeah. Um, another easy thing you could do is just look at the, the limb of the person. So for example, if you're doing upper body exercise, like bicep curls, for example, yeah. if you look at the person's hands and they appear pale in color, that's another indication that you probably want to back off the pressure a little bit. Uh, so there's some more um, specific methods that you can use, um, but those are just some easy guidelines that you could pick up to make sure that you're not applying a pressure that's, that's completely cutting off arterial blood flow. Got it, and then from my understanding, you're basically using the same therapeutic exercise interventions you would without BFR, same patterns, same exercises, but you know, in summary, the BFR allows you to use a much significantly less load and you mentioned a decreased strain on the joints. Um, plus, can you also speak to, you know, what happens at the, the the cellular level? You know, when you have that occlusion there, what stimulates to help to get that response? Yeah. Uh, so there's a bunch of different proposed mechanisms as to what's causing it. Um, some people will say there's a, a muscle swelling effect mm -hmm. that is increases protein synthesis. The reason there being that the fact that you could just apply repeated inflations and deflations of the cuff without doing any exercise, um, there's really not a whole lot mechanistically going on other than fluid shifts from the plasma into the muscle cells. Mm -hmm. um, the main thing when we talk about with low load resistance exercise, it's probably due to the fact that we're completely occluding venous return back to the heart. So we have this pooling of metabolically fatiguing metabolites within the muscle. Uh, so what that does is it fatigues lower threshold motor units. And now, even though we're only lifting with 20 to 30% of our max, we have to recruit higher threshold motor units in order to make up for the loss of force production because our lower threshold motor units are now fatigued. So it's a way of making sure that we're actually getting to a similar muscle activation but just a different mechanism through getting there. Because if we lifted heavy weights, we'd have a high recruitment right, right from the get-go. So it's an alternate way to, to activate a large portion of muscle fibers, really. That's fantastic. Uh, Scott, thanks for bringing this to ats and It's definitely an up-and-coming, rising uh, trend. I don't even want to call it a trend because we yeah. know it works. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's out there, so athletic trainers need to definitely study it and understand it more. So thank you for bringing it up uh, here to the seminar. Yeah, thank you very much awesome. for your time. I appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. All right, wrapping up ATSNJ 2020 was a, a great talk by Dr. B.J. Gallagher. Uh, Dr. Gallagher is a non-operative sports medicine physician with uh, Brielle Orthopedics at, at Rothman. And uh, your talk today was on the current concepts when it comes to office-based treatment of the concussed athlete, but you also talked about sideline assessment and whatnot. So, um, you know, thank you again for, for continuing that conversation in our profession. And um, first, I wanted to talk about what are the biggest areas in concussion management that you've seen over the last few years that have really progressed? Um, in your experience. Ryan, first I just want to say thanks for having me on. This is great and I wish you the best of luck and hope you continue growth, man. This Thank is you. a great idea. Thank you. So as far as for concussion, I think some of the changes that we've seen, especially since the 2019 uh, iteration of the AMSSM information, I would say is that one, previously, and even you see it in the SCAT form, that ADD, ADHD, and learning disabilities previously would be shown to have a correlation with prolonging the symptoms and potentially causing, uh, leading to post-concussive syndrome. Mm -hmm. However, now we find that there's not a direct correlation in that anymore. Also previously, we had thought that being female and being in a certain age group 
would be a direct correlation. However, we're finding, I think at this point, we need a bit more evidence before we could say that's a hard, firm yes. And then what we have also seen is that instead of those, we're able to utilize what we call a uh, one week or within the first week. So after the first 24 to 48 hours of holding, Uh if we do a pointed low heart rate threshold symptoms, so using how much you get symptoms based upon doing a little bit of activity. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying go pick up basketball or anything like that. You're not getting on the ice. But the idea being that if you go and go for a walk, get on a bike, get on a treadmill, and you do it till symptoms. And they note if it's a lower threshold, so if your heart rate gets to 80, and normally you can get to 180 Uh and you're getting symptoms, and they don't have a firm number for that, but if you're getting symptoms at a lower threshold rate, there is a correlation to having prolonged symptoms. Yeah, and you mentioned during your talk that you know we would expect that most would recover within two weeks for an adult, um, up to potentially four weeks as a as a child. Um, so you know you're talking about those situations where it's going beyond that even too. Um, then things get a little more complex, and you talked in those cases that you have to really take that multimodal approach because. You said there, there's other situations where they're maybe giving the sign of looking like concussion symptoms, but it's actually other things going on instead. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. You know, uh, concussion is a really tough target to hit at times, especially when we're getting in that post-concussive state. Mm-hmm. And historically, we used to just treat it as kind of that cocoon theory or kind of just rest dark room treatment, yeah. which we're finding more and more that just isn't the case. Yeah. We're actually potentially doing a disservice. And there's lots of animal studies that show that this is true. And we're finding now that in the human studies that we're getting some preliminary evidence that that's also the case, that we're potentially doing them a disservice. Yeah, absolutely. Very important that athletic trainers set the speed on, on those trends and those protocols because it makes a big difference in, mm-hmm. in outcomes. You also spoke during your talk about the concussion care team and about the importance of working collaboratively with a number of professionals, not just athletic trainers and physicians, but you know, speak to that, the importance of that, and who all do you see as members of that healthcare team? Yeah, absolutely. I, with concussion and injuries in general, but I think that concussion specifically, because it is such a hard target, and it's not like you have a bruise, there's nothing torn, there's nothing swollen that you can see, yeah. that it's really important to have everybody on board. So, I mean, the nursing staff, other students, the parents, uh, the athletic director, we're talking about the primary care doctor, the school doctor, having a multimodal, having everybody together is really going to be important to help this athlete get back to sport and back to school appropriately. That, that's so, so key and not only with, with working together but you know you have to facilitate that continuity of care. What suggestions do you have for athletic trainers out there to really facilitate that, that continuity of care, enhance their communication? You know, what strategies would you recommend that they do that? Yeah, I think at the beginning of the year when you have your conversations and your discussions about what's gonna go on in the future with your doc at the school, mm-hmm. if you make a really candid, clear conversation with them about, tell me what paperwork are you gonna utilize, what things you expect. So are you gonna let these kids come to class late, go early, you're gonna have them put their heads down in class, can they go to the nurse? If you have that clearly on paper and you have that conversation, if you guys know as trainers what's expected, if there's a disconnect, so if maybe they forget to give them the paperwork at the doc's office, or if all of a sudden a parent or a student thinks that they should be cleared when they're not, if you guys have an understanding of this prior, it's really gonna help put out fires before they ever get too much air to them and really grow. Um, And I think we're gonna be able to help these kids in the long run. 
That's a great point, Doc. Thank you so much for taking some time to, to recap. It was a great summit, and uh, you were a great way to, to, to finish things off with the grand finale and concussion. So thanks for your contributions. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ryan. That was an action-packed episode. So many great people, so many great messages that were delivered this weekend. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm going to have the email addresses for all of the uh, people that were on this episode included in the show notes. So you could definitely reach out to anyone if you want to learn more or have any further conversation with them about what they were discussing. If you haven't yet uh, done so, make sure that you hit that subscribe button and um, don't ever miss uh, another episode of the Catalyzing Podcast for Athletic Trainers coming out there. It is National Athletic Training Month. I'm sure all of you are doing some great things out there to promote the athletic training profession and healthcare in general in your communities and across uh, those that we work with collaboratively on a daily basis. continue to do those great things. Keep up the good work. Uh, I'm going to do a a few more podcast episodes this month uh, in alignment with uh, the mission of Healthcare Through Action for the uh, NATA uh, initiative this athletic training month. So stay tuned for those. That being said, continue to do the great things out there. Uh, We'll continue to to bring you some fire info here and uh, help you elevate your career and, and take things to the next level. Elevate the great things you're doing out there. So thanks for listening. Wish you all the best. We'll catch you next time.